You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Friends, if you're a veteran listener to this podcast, and even those of you who are newer, you know one of the things that I harp on again and again is the importance of brave practice with the kind of materials we talk about on this show and the kind of materials I write about in my book. Uh, You know, I think one of the fallacies of learning nowadays is we believe that we primarily learn by taking in, whether we're reading or listening. But really, the way we experience spiritual transformation and leadership growth is by bravely practicing. So all along in my book, on this show, I've been encouraging folks to find a group of people group of people you trust, and then try on some of these principles where you discuss it, then you try it, then you discuss how it went. Uh, Technically, it's called the action, reflection, action method of learning. That's how I was trained as a chaplain. That's how I train my staff at our church. Uh, Several of you have reached out to see if I would be willing to be involved in any of that. So I just want to let you know, I'm just opening up just two slots for group coaching uh, this fall group coaching. So if you want to join me, it will be over six sessions over Zoom. It can either be that you bring a group and I coach your group, or you might just want to join as an individual and we'll get somewhere between four and six people in the group. We meet for six sessions and we do this action reflection action method. The thing I love about the group coaching that I'm doing right now is the group really gets to choose which direction you want to go. So if that's something you're interested in, I'll put a link in the show notes. You can email me, steve at stevecuswords.com. You'll get faster if you email chris, Chris Willis at dc2.com because she runs all the schedule. And uh, we can talk to you about opportunities if you want to get into a coaching group in the next uh, month or so. All right, today's guest, the absolutely wonderful Dr. Wesley Hill. Uh, Wes Hill is a PhD New Testament scholar in biblical studies from Durham University. He's also a deacon in the Anglican Church And he's currently uh, a professor at Trinity School for Ministry. Many of you may be familiar with Wesley. For those of you who are not, he really burst on the scene with this absolutely, honestly, phenomenal book called Washed and Waiting, which was his own memoir, his own journey of being a same-sex attracted person who's chosen, based on biblical conviction, to practice celibacy. Wesley is a PhD scholar, so we talk about all kinds of things, and he's an Anglican deacon who's uh, moving into the priesthood. Uh, Some of you know that I'm fascinated with Anglicanism, so we get into Anglicanism, we get into his same-sex attraction, we get into theology, we cover all kinds of material. Uh, One of the things I appreciate about Wesley, I've been following him and listening to him for some time, He's, he's just a thoughtful, nuanced guy, and those are the kinds of people I want to learn from, the men and women who just are giving a little extra thought than the rest of us, and they're able to articulate it in a way that helps us see it. Boy, that's Wesley in spades. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Well, Wesley, let's begin um, by obviously you kind of cut your teeth in scholarship. You're a New Testament scholar, did your PhD at Durham, but you're also, I believe, an ordained what would be, are you a priest in the Episcopal and Anglican Church? Yeah, so I'm ordained a deacon right now. Okay. Um, and Lord willing, I'll be ordained a priest in September. So I'm not sure when this will air. Uh, it could be that I 
will already be ordained a priest once it airs. But uh, yeah, that's the journey that I've been on. Yeah. So a preemptive congratulations then on your upcoming priesthood. Um, I'm fascinated. It's it's a you're a rare breed nowadays where you're a what I would call a pastor scholar. Would would you consider yourself that way, or how would you name it? That's what I would like to be. Yeah. Uh, I I realized when I was young that I was feeling called to work in the church. And even even when I was a Baptist growing up, I felt that ordination was probably in my future. Um, but I don't feel that I want to choose between that and a life of scholarship. You know, I think that the life of faith and ministry goes together with the life of the mind. And I want to be one of those people who helps Christians make that connection between the two. Yeah. Yeah, so I think you have a unique insight for us because you know most of my listeners are faith leaders, not all of them. Some of them are just parents or or interested people in this topic, but um, not many of my listeners would have a foot in the scholarship world and the foot in the church world like you do. Um, what are some of the unique pressures that you see in church leadership that scholars may not be aware of? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I, I, since getting ordained, have become a lot more involved at the church that I worship at and a lot more involved in ministry. And I think it's just so much about relationship. It's it's so much about getting to know people, getting to know their particular stories, their particular hopes and dreams and fears and anxieties. And I think uh, the life of a scholar tends to involve some degree of that, right? You know, we go to conferences, we interact with other scholars, or in my case, you know, we're, we're teaching future ministers. So yeah. we're, we're trying to mentor our students and engage. But I think that, um, you know, when you're sort of thinking about scholarship in the abstract, uh, your ideal conditions, you know, all of us dream about holding up in the library for weeks yeah. at a time and just reading to our heart's content. And I think I think that a lot of ministers would want to remind us and say, "Hey, that's great, but it it it's all about people. Can you communicate what you're learning with real human beings who who are not simply brains on a stick? You know, like Jamie Smith talks about. We're actually moved by our our affections and our our hearts. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that's that's very important. Yeah. And then what about on the flip side? Um, like, I I wouldn't be able to answer the question of the kinds of pressures that scholars face. What would you have to say to church leaders as a scholar? Yeah, well, I, I, perhaps some of the pressures are similar because I think uh, a lot of us right now are feeling a lot of anxiety about our jobs. Right. Um, you know, the the future of higher education is really up for grabs, I think, in light of the virus and, and other pressures. And really, even um, before COVID, right? Like everything was radically COVID. changing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So my own seminary, you know, we're, we're trying out new ventures in sort of online learning and online communities. And we're having a massive conversation among ourselves about is, is spiritual formation possible in an online context? And yeah. if so, how do we lean into that? How do we pursue that? Um, I think I think the other thing that we all have to wrestle with is is balancing our priorities. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a kind of symbiotic relationship between teaching and the life of research, and they feed into each other. Um, so if I'm if I'm actively writing and researching and learning new things, that energizes me in the classroom. And if I'm engaging with students with their questions, allowing their questions to affect me, to, to unsettle me, then that is pushing me back into the library, right? So there's this this kind of uh, loop, you know, a, a, a mutual direction in, in the terms of the influence of the two. 
So, um, yeah, I think, I think we can probably find some connection with each other because every pastor that I know wishes they had more time to read and think yeah. and feel the pressure of not being able to do as much of that. And, and we feel that, too. You know, those of us who are in the academy, those of us who are academics, we, we wrestle with the same things. Yeah, you recently released a book on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, what are you working on right now? Yeah, well, it, it's a it's a little hard to describe, but I'm I'm working on a book that tries to uh, speak into the sexuality debates that okay. we've all been having for a while, and it's the sort of book that if if I'm co-writing it with a theologian named Steve Holmes, he's a Baptist minister in Scotland, uh, also a professor at the University of St Andrews. But we've we've both said to each other, if we if we do this book right, it will make everybody upset, <laughs> because what we want to say is that the the current ways we have of framing this, you know, the progressive left versus the conservative right, all of us are sort of asking about what needs to be affirmed or defended. Yeah. So traditional conservatives would say we need to defend traditional marriage. This is the way it's always been in human history and culture. And the progressive left would say no, no, we need to be affirming. Um, other kinds of love beyond heterosexual love and marriage. And what Steve and I want to say is that 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 whole debate between affirming or defending is not the right debate. It's not the conversation we should be having. We, we should all be having a conversation about how, regardless of how we identify, whether we're straight or gay or, or somewhere in between, all of us are called to a costly kind of reordering of our loves, uh, a redirecting of desire to, to God and, and to others. Um, so the, the key debate should be about sanctification and and the kind of the kind of redeeming of sexual desire rather than kind of rubber stamping what already is as we know it. So I don't think Christians are called to defend something called heterosexuality, and I don't think Christians are called to affirm something called homosexuality. I think we're all called to be on a journey of transformation so that our sexuality today is submitted to, to God and and is is gradually, slowly over our lifetimes being rewired and, you know, redirected according to God's purposes. So um, so we want this to be something of a challenge to everybody, you know, where, whatever camp you land in, whatever side of the debate that you're on, we want you to feel kind of, Hmm, maybe, maybe I need to do some rethinking about some of my basic assumptions about this whole conversation. So that's what we're, that's what we're working on. That'll, that'll be published by Erdman's, uh, eventually, but we, we've not finished it yet. Yeah. Do you have a projected release date for that? It sounds like an essential book. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks. Not yet, but if you want to get a teaser for it, you can you can Google. Um, so Steve Holmes uh, wrote a blog post a couple of years ago called "Queer Hippo." Okay, uh, uh, and the hippo comes from uh, the the name Saint Augustine of Hippo, sure. and Augustine was the one who talked about you know our hearts are restless until they rest in God, yeah. and so we need we need to be drawn into God in in the realm of desire. So, yeah, yeah, Queer Hippo is the working title. Oh, that's great. I'll I'll uh, Google that and I'll have a link to his blog in our, our show notes. Thanks. Um, I, I, I mean, it, it begs the question, Wesley, did, did you choose Steve to co-write because he's well-versed in the topic or really just as an excuse for you to get to uh, St. Andrews? Exactly. Exactly. Oh, man. What a, what a wonderful place. I wish I was a golfer so I could oh, play the old, the old course. Yeah. yeah, I've been to Edinburgh. I've never been up that far to St. Andrews, but I, I just, I'm looking for a reason to get back there. It's an amazing place. You must. You must. It's a beautiful place. I mean, it's sort of a windswept, you know, kind of remote. Uh, you yeah. feel like you're on the edge of civilization, but it's, it's terrific. 
Um, yeah, so the way it happened is Steve had written this post uh, several years ago, and, and I had felt really provoked by it and energized by it. And he and I started talking about it, and he said, "Well, why don't we why don't we try to write this book together?" You know, he knew that I had done some work on sexuality, and I've shared about my story. I'm a gay man myself who's chosen a life of celibacy, um, and so yeah, it's a, it's a good partnership. Steve brings the kind of uh, systematic theological rigor to the project, and I bring kind of the personal dimension as well as the kind of biblical uh, interest. Um, so we're having fun. We're, we're enjoying this collaboration. Oh, that, that's really awesome. Yeah. I will, uh, I will take the opportunity to let people know if, if people are not familiar with you, Wesley, your book washed and waiting was kind of a memoir of, um, your own, a battle and your choice to be celibate. It's, it's a remarkable book. I, I think, I don't remember if it came out about five years ago. I remember reading it as soon as it came out and, my reaction to your book was it was the first memoir I had read by a gay Christian where there wasn't a tremendous amount of angst around coming out to people. Mm. Like for example, like Mel White's book, uh, yeah. there's so much pain surrounding yeah. his story, whereas you got so much blessing, even though you were largely in an evangelical, I guess you call it a subculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, Mel White, came out after having spent years in the closet working for these really high powered evangelical conservative folks. And it was pretty painful. He lost a lot of those relationships. And yeah, I I often say to people, I I feel like I got lucky in some respects. I I grew up in a pretty sheltered, conservative kind of fundamentalist uh, environment. And I was, I was pretty scared to come out uh, when I was a teenager. I waited until I went off to college. Uh, I went to Wheaton college near Chicago And, um, yeah, I, I was, I was sort of bracing myself for people to raise their eyebrows or, or, you know, hold me at arm's length or say, wow, this is beyond the pale, you know, this kind of thing. This was early two thousands. Obviously the culture has changed a lot since then. Um, but I, I was really met with, I would say profound, uh, empathy, um, listening. Um, I remember one of my professors just immediately tried to make connections to, you know, struggles and burdens that he had, he had wrestled with. So there was, there was kind of a solidarity that I felt from the people that I came out to initially. And, um, it was, it, it was a long process for me. I didn't, I didn't, it took me several years to even tell my family, for example. Um, but yes, there was a lot of grace in it. And I, I think, you know, there's a lot we could say about our current culture. Um, mm-hmm. there are things I, I'm concerned about, you know, I, I think a lot of younger Christians to me seem to, kind of dismiss the, 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 the harder biblical texts on this yeah. and say, oh, well, those, those are about another culture. Those are about another time. And so I'm worried about that. But, but one thing I will say is I, I'm really glad that our culture as a whole is much more open to talking about um, same-sex relationships and same-sex desire um, because people like me for a long time felt like we had to kind of keep that a secret. Right. So, um, you know, there, there are, there are things that I think are actually better about where we are culturally right now than they were in the, in the early 2000s. I agree. I'm reading Karen Keene's book right now. And just even in the introduction, she just takes decade by decade. Exactly. And boy, is she on point about how we're all, I think, too slowly learning and figuring some things out. But, but that's right. While we're chatting about this, I'd love to get your take on two, what feels to me like sticking points. So one is Mm. on the conservative side and one is on the progressive side. So let let me throw this and see see how this sticks with you. My beef with the conservative side of this 
that says uh, gay marriage is not within the will of God. Being a same-sex attracted person, no problem, but um, celibacy is is your option. Right. My, my beef is not so much with that as with how much we have idolized marriage in the church. Yeah. Only to then... It feels very hypocritical to me, and I'm speaking personally. I don't. I'm not speaking prophetically. I'm saying even in my own life, like like I'm a lead pastor of a church, and as much as we hmm. say everybody's welcome, most of our single people would say, "But we were more welcome when we got married." And that's. I think that's a real right. indictment. And I know our church is really wrestling with this. What's your take on the modern? Uh, modern Western or modern evangelical church's obsession with marriage and family? Hmm. Well, I, I think there is an obsession. I think you're, you just put your finger on it and you've, you've expressed it really well as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, I, I've heard, I've heard so many, uh, pastors talk about, well, well, Paul says singleness is a gift and, and that it's an opportunity for ministry and it frees you up to serve the Lord in a way that you couldn't if you were married. And, and, you know, of course, that's there in the New Testament. We have to take that seriously. But uh, you mentioned my friend Karen Keene, who's an yeah. author and a spiritual director. And, and Karen has this provocative line. Um, I don't think it's in her book. I think it was on a blog post that she wrote. But she said, uh, singleness, as we know it today in the modern West, is not God's will for anybody. And I, I remember reading that and sort of sitting up in my chair and saying, right. wow. But I think she's right, because what yeah. she's trying to express there is that We've constructed this kind of modern idea of singleness um, that's extremely independent. It's often lonely. It's often um, there's a kind of social pecking order to it. You're 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 less prominent in the church if you're unmarried. Yeah. Maybe even certain jobs are not available to you if you're if you're single. And Karen says that's not at all the biblical picture of singleness. You know, if you think about singleness as we see it in the New Testament, for example. I mean, Paul has this rich network of relationships that are sustaining him, and and um, he's not isolated. He's not going off to his apartment on a weekend and eating a frozen pizza or something. You know, he's, he's yeah. deeply enmeshed in the lives of, of other people, and he's mentoring people. And, um, and of course, in the life of Jesus, we, we see someone who is um, extremely social and who also has this deeply intimate prayer life with God the Father. So all of that is to say, I think if we are going to uh, celebrate and promote singleness for gay people, um, we have to recognize that there's a singleness problem in the church. We haven't done it well. And so it feels a bit cheap, like you say, to say, well, you guys, you guys can be single. Paul liked that. Jesus was single without us doing the hard work of becoming the kind of communities that would support a life of singleness. Yeah, I know uh, you've done a lot of work on spiritual community and spiritual friendship yes. as, as really an antidote to that. And then I think where I get caught too is on the progressive side of things, it feels like the beginning and the ending of the conversation is around the acceptance of gay marriage. Yeah. So that you are determined to be open and affirming only if you affirm gay marriage, yeah. not if you affirm gay people. What's your word on that? Yeah, well, there's a there's a line um, that David Foster Wallace says that he learned in recovery, and he, he says, "Your best thinking got you here." Um, in other words, when when, it, when when an addict hits rock bottom, you know we have to we have to uh, uh, 
reckon with the fact, grapple with the fact that we thought we were doing the right thing at every step along the way. You know, we yeah. thought we thought we had this thing under control. We thought we were managing okay, and then suddenly it turned out that we didn't. We didn't have control. And um, I, I think about that line in relation to us as Christians. You know, our best thinking got us here. Why, why is it that uh, gay people are telling us they don't feel welcome in our churches um, unless we affirm gay marriage? Well. Maybe the primary fault is not where we would like to put it. I think a lot of conservative people want to say, well, the fault is with gay people who just want to express themselves. They want to ignore scripture. But what if, what if in fact, the church is partly to blame for this situation? Yeah. You know, what if, what if it was our own best efforts actually turned out not to be right, you know, not, not to be what we needed? And so I'm interested in having a conversation about what if the church could be the kind of community where the two options that gay people felt like they had between either um, a long-term commitment in a same-sex relationship or profound loneliness. What if those two didn't seem like the only options? What if, what if gay and lesbian people could look at the church and say, you know, they're calling me to do something really hard. They're calling me to abstain from sex, which is profoundly difficult. Um, but look at how much they love each other. Look at how much they support each other. Look at how they make sure that their single members are folded right into the heart of families and and the way they honor people who are sexual minorities. You know, if if that were what we were known for, if that was the the picture of the church, I feel that the debate about whether to accept gay marriage or not would it would feel a lot less. Yeah, to be less uh, um, or, or urgent. Yeah. Yeah. Man, a oh man. Yeah, it's pretty humbling, Wesley. It, it feels like we still have a long way to go to really... Well, we do. We do. And I tell my students, you know, one of the mysteries of the Christian life is, why, did, why didn't God just save and sanctify us all at once? You know, well, yeah. why, why this journey of discipleship? You know, why, why, why 2,000 years of church history now, which in, has involved so much sin and so much brokenness? And, yeah. and I don't know. You know, I think that's one of the mysteries of our faith. Why, why does it take so long? Um, but we, we know that... We know that God is up to something good. And, and I think, I think the fact that all of us are kind of asking questions like we're talking about today, we're, we're searching our hearts, we're doing some critical self-scrutiny, all that is great. And, yeah. and all that is so important. And I, I believe the Holy Spirit is working in that. Uh, that's really good. I, I was excited to discover that uh, you've had experience with um, CPE, clinical pastoral education, in, in the circles I run in, it's either no one knows about it or it's mm. considered very suspiciously. <laughs> like right. uh, I did a year of CPE out of the college and the college placement guy, when he found out I was going to do it, he's like, don't don't have anything to do with that crazy right. thing. Um, for people who are not familiar with it, would you just give us a quick description of what it is? Yeah, sure. So CPE, you've already said, Steve, it stands for Clinical Pastoral Education. And it's a program... Um, often, often it's a requirement for people who are heading into ordained ministry or chaplaincy, uh, work. Um, so I, I had to do it. I was required to do it by my bishop, um, as part of my ordination process. Um, but what it is, is, is you, it's, it's structured around a cohort. So there are other students with you and you're uh, working at a hospital or in my case, I was at the veterans, uh, affairs hospital, uh, here in Pittsburgh, yeah. um, the VA hospital. And, and they assigned me to the behavioral health uh, unit there. Um, which was a, uh, a dive into the deep end of the pool, shall we? Say. Yes. Um, 
but you, so, so you're going in and you're logging hours with a chaplain supervisor, meaning that you're visiting patients, you're, uh, having pastoral conversations with, with patients and often with staff as well. And then you meet once a week in your cohort to debrief with each other, to talk with each other. And you also have a mentor there as well, who's facilitating the conversation. And um, a big part of what you're doing is you're, you're writing what are called verbatims and you're presenting those to each other. And a verbatim, very simply, is just a kind of script of a pastoral conversation that you had that week. And then you, you share that with the, your, your cohort along with your self-reflections. So h- how did I do? What did I miss? You know, how did I take that opportunity for further conversation? Or how did I you know, botch that opportunity that I had? And you're then offering feedback to each other you know, within your peer group. And I, I found it to be, I, I was sort of like you. People had warned me, oh, this is a, this is a kind of pluralistic, you know, kind yeah. of religi- religiously kind of vapid program. But I, I actually found it to be really, really helpful. And um, I, I did it on top of my full-time job. So I was, I was logging, you know, 30 hours a week uh, visiting patients at the VA. So it about killed me to do it, but, but it was a, it was a really formative experience. How many verbatims have you done, Wesley? I think I did six or seven all told. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so we do verbatims at our church stuff. Great. I, I took, I took CPE and thought, I wonder how I can, without all the supervision and the licenses, <laughs> I'm kind of going rogue, but just how can I provide my church staff an opportunity for self-reflection? So yep. for, for our listeners, what, let, what Wesley's talking about is you basically write an essay. Yes. But it's a chance, and, and it's called a verbatim because you're supposed to, as best as you can, remember word for word what, That's what right. you said and the other person said. And you kind of initially put it in the form of a dialogue. You know, this person said this, then I responded like this, then they said this, and then I responded. Yeah. And then, as you said, the self-reflection, you you write a verbatim in a table. So then the right-hand column is when you're trying to recall what you were thinking and feeling in the moment. That's right. Yeah. So I actually have a whole chapter in my book dedicated to how to do verbatims. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because that, that's great. It, it was transformative for me. I, I, I was a CPE chaplain for a year. We met every day instead of every week. Wow! So we wow. all did fifty something verbatims. So there were weeks where wow. you would do two. You, you got the you got the amped up version. <laughs> oh my goodness! I when I did my CPE, it was a I, I I'm I'm certain God knew I needed it because I I went in kicking and screaming when mm. I figured out what because it's you know they're rummaging around into some assumptions and the way you yeah. the things yeah. that you didn't realize people get to touch. So what are one or two things about yourself that your peer group helped you either learn or work on through a verbatim? Oh, that's a great question. I I think I learned to be more, I mean, this is going to sound bad because we don't really like this word in modern culture, but I I learned to kind of seize a bit of pastoral authority more. I think I went in very uh, fearful, to be honest. Uh, You know, I, I, when they interviewed me for the, to see if I would be accepted to this particular unit of CPE, they said, which, which unit would you, which hospital unit would you most like to be assigned to? And which would you most be afraid of being assigned to? And I said, 
well, you know, I'm, I'm heading into pastoral ministry. I think it'd be great if I could be assigned to the, um, the word has left my brain, um, the, the, um, at the end of life hospice, hospice, uh, unit. Yes. That would be yep. a great, uh, experience, I think. And I said, I think I'd be most afraid of being assigned to the behavioral health uh, <laughs> unit. So of course that's where they put trap. me. <laughs> yeah. It's a trap. So I, I went in, you know, these, these are locked units, you know, these, these are often yeah. patients who are, um, a risk to themselves. Um, you know, sometimes very dramatic behavior. Uh, my first minute on the unit, you know, the door slammed behind me and the lock clicked shut. And a gentleman, probably in his 70s, raced up to me and yelled at the top of his lungs, I know who killed John F. Kennedy. And then sort of raced back to the to the back of the unit. So I was I was pretty apprehensive. I was um I didn't feel sure of myself at all. And I think my verbatims showed this. By the end of the unit, you know, I was the one kind of as it were, taking the initiative and and walking up to people and trying to trying to dive into a conversation. And so I think I I gained confidence, you know, and and I think I think that uh, hearing my peers affirm that in me and 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 hearing from them, uh, Wes, we've seen this kind of arc in your in your yes. in your ministry as the time has gone on was really helpful. It it actually makes me think of Stanley Hauerwas has this great line where um, he says the thing that he answers whenever anyone asks him if he's a Christian, he says, "I don't know. You'll have to ask my friends." Um, meaning, in other words, like sometimes we can't ac- exactly tell the arc of our of our journey and how we've changed yeah. and what our what our trust or our ministry looks like. And so that that was that was a beautiful thing. I have to say, I, I love that you do this with your staff. I've never heard of a church staff doing verbatims before. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, we we I, I came to this church and we had about 150 people. We were a small church plant. Mm-hmm. I didn't plant us. So we're about five years old, okay. and we had no money. So my only option for staff was to uh, recruit people from the congregation. Right. And these amazing people, no ministry training at all. And at, at one point, several years in, uh, we could see we were moving into our own building, getting out of the cafeteria of an elementary school. And now we've actually been able to build our own place. And I knew that meant we were going to grow. Right. It's just the nature of yeah. it. Um, whether it's good or bad, it just is. Sure. And I'm looking at, I, I remember particularly my four of my key leaders who I thought they're not going to make it without some kind of training. Uh, because my experience is if you've had ministry training, you come into a church, you kind of figure out the nature of it and then you you adapt or you grow. But when, you, when you've come out of that church and not had any other experience, you already don't think you can do it. Right. And then the church grows. And so, for example, one of my great staff, he would say to me, you know, now that we're growing, you're going to get the people that really know what they're doing. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 we're it. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. Like, We've been in this together. Yeah. So I, I, I remember because for me, the CPE experience was transformative. Um, I cannot imagine the kind of human I'd be today without it. Now, were, were you assigned to do it, Steve, or did you just feel that you wanted to or needed to or... Yeah, so I was engaged and graduating from college. My fiance, Lisa, mm-hmm. who, uh, who my brother, brother knows. knows. Yeah. yeah. Um, Lisa had one more year of college. She had a five year degree she was on, and I needed a job. And I went to the college placement. It's really a disappointing story. And, and he said, Look, you're in the options like fast food or maybe some kind of bank teller because you're only going to do it for a year. You can't do a ministry job. Mm-hmm. So I literally called in the yellow pages, I called employment agencies. Mm-hmm. And I, I was all hat in hand. Hey, I've, I've right. just got this little Bible degree. 
And the guy, he's like, hey, you could be a hospital chaplain. Mm. And so he connected me to University of Tennessee Hospital. Okay. Just so happened that was when they were interviewing. And it's it's truly a almost miraculous story. I was 24, no previous CP experience, mm. no master's degree. Mm. And um, and so I wasn't qualified mm. and they hired me anyway. And I assure you, it wasn't because of me. Like my interview was a train wreck. <laughs> um, I'd come out of a background in sales. Mm. It's actually the first time in my life where I suddenly was exposed as a fraud. Like it was in the interview where, you know, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd always been able to kind of um, uh, sell my way through a right. situation where I didn't right. know what to do. Right. But when you're in, when you're in a situation where there's grief and death, yeah. you suddenly realize this is not the time. So we just plumbed my ignorance for about two hours. Wow. Um, wow. Which, uh, which and I, was, I remember must've been a very humbling experience. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I remember going back to Lisa saying, I, I think I'll go to Taco Bell. And about a week later they called and they said, we're going to take a chance on you. Like you, you've, you're a little bit of a concern, but we've got five other students. We think if you, Kind of just you know figure us out you'll be fine, and uh, wow I life, love that that's great life changing that's great yeah three three hundred deaths or so that year I did wow. hospice wow um, and you know level one trauma so yeah so so yeah basically then brought and now I do uh, I do verbatim groups on Zoom that's um, I just wonderful. did one yesterday with a group of five pastors from all over the country and we're going to do our first verbatim next week so it's it's something I think I think anything that slows us down and gets us reflecting on our own habits of ministry. Like one of the things we talked a lot about in my group was the difference between a support response and a shift response in a conversation. Oh yeah. Say more about well, that. So for example, like if a, if a patient said to me, um, you know, I've, I've really been, uh, down today and I might respond and say, Oh, tell, tell me more about that. That would be a support response. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to draw out somewhere where they've already opened the door to talk about their this relationship, and now I, I'm I'm kind of inviting more. Or I could have said, um, you know, the patient says, "Well, I'm kind of I'm kind of down today. I'm thinking about my uh, son that I haven't spoken to in five years." Then if I say, "Oh, I I, I have a son that I haven't spoken to in two years as well," so, suddenly the spotlight is now on me. I've shifted the attention to me. And so that can happen in really subtle ways and it can happen for different reasons. You know, maybe it was that I'm not comfortable because of my own anxieties going yeah. where the patient wants to go and therefore I'm kind of withdrawing or I'm, I'm moving along. So things like that were really helpful for me to think, think about, you know, what is happening in me. And this is, this is the CPE model, right? You're, you're, you're reflecting on what your pastoral work not only how effective it is or how effective you feel that it is with the other person, but what is it doing inside me? What's being stirred up? Yeah. You know, what, what fears, what hopes, what ambitions, what um, worries, <laughs> you know, and, and that, that is just profoundly helpful for all of us in a culture where we, we find so many ways, I think, or I should say I find so many ways to be distracted, to be superficial and to have to, to have to sit with your own self, even even when you recognize, like you're saying about your interview, that you're seeing some ugly things about yourself, you, you, right. the things you wish weren't true about yourself. That that's that's just profoundly important. Yeah. So this encounter, let's say, with somebody who's saying, "Okay, uh, my child hasn't talked to me in five years," and then the way you just described it, Wesley, that maybe it's an anxious response that I'm then shifting right. 
that exercise you just led us through, was that a new exercise for you in CPE or had you done some of that kind of work before? I'd, I'd done some of that work before. Um, I actually learned those terms when, when I took a sociology class uh, in college. I will say one, one of the things I'm grateful for, my family of origin when I was growing up, one of the things that we actively talked about sometimes around the dinner table is how to become better listeners. Um, I remember that as a child, like having wow. that as a topic of conversation. And and my parents would sometimes complain about people who that they knew that when they when they would talk to these friends, it didn't ever feel like a real conversation yeah. because the other person didn't really seem interested in it in listening. And so I think I think having had that experience of of kind of flagging from a young age, oh, this is an area of human life that we need to be more self-reflective about. Um, maybe that prepared me for, for some of the things that I learned in CPE. You know, Wesley, you've been postponing it long enough. It's time to face like a man the gauntlet of anxiety questions. Uh, I have five questions today. You can pass or play. You can go as as short or as long as you like. Sure. Uh, number one, um, what sort of leadership s- situations generate anxiety for you? Uh, it doesn't have to be exhaustive, but just give us a couple where you know if you're going to be in this kind of situation, you're going to be anxious. So I, I think of my primary field of leadership as the classroom, that's where I really try yeah. to pass on, you know, what what wisdom I feel like I've been able to glean. And as you know, I'm sure uh, managing a classroom is is kind of an art, <laughs> and there and there's a skill set to it. Yeah. And I think I feel really anxious when I feel that I have allowed a discussion, for example, to take a turn that I can now see this is not helpful anymore. This is distracting us from the main task at hand today. And I've let this happen. You know, I've, I've allowed students to kind of, you know, rabbit trail all over the place. And, um, so I, I find myself looking for like immediately starting to think, what are ways that I can redirect in a way that is not threatening and that is not heavy handed? Um, because you know, one of the, one of the ways of thinking about teaching is that you're, you're there to facilitate learning, not just to be a conveyor of information, you know, not download your knowledge. And so, so dialogue in the classroom is, is essential to that. Uh, but it needs to be good dialogue. You know, it needs to be dialogue that's actually on point and productive and, and that doesn't descend into, you know, name calling or, 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 you know, frustration or anger or things like that. So, um, you know, some of my students tell me that I, I, I do a good job at, taking a student question and sometimes the student isn't even quite able to connect it to the topic at hand, but I can draw those connections. And I, I really appreciate those com- those compliments when they tell me that, because that's something I really work on. Um, I, I, I notice my anxiety, you know, going up when I'm, when I'm not doing that well. And yeah. so I, I make it a matter of real intentional, uh, work, you know, in, in the, in the classroom. So, um, yeah. I, I think- okay. So, Let's put you in that classroom and suddenly, let's say it's a, uh, it's almost always a young white male that does <laughs> exactly. this. Exactly. 
especially when there's something about theology degrees that make us young white guys even worse than we were before. So let's say it's some young guy that's now taking the conversation and there's an aggressive edge to what he's saying. You can tell that maybe there's somebody um, in the classroom that his words might be affecting negatively. And you're suddenly feeling like I'm losing control. Um, Are you able to put us in your head at that moment? What's the story you're telling yourself about yourself when that happens? I think this is a delicate thing because, like I say, we we, we come up here to a category like authority. You know, at one level, I'm the authority in the classroom. But anybody in a position of leadership knows that if you try to wield authority from the top down without without earning it, you know, without kind of um, uh, acting in such a way that people want to have you as the authority then you're doing it wrong. So I, yeah. I think I think the 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 narrative that's running through my head in those moments is how can I respond in a way that that isn't just a laying down the law kind of response? How can I exercise my academic authority in a way that actually leads to a more creative and constructive place? So what I, what I'll often try to do in moments like you describe is is to step into the role of being a mediator or a translator. And I'll try to translate the concerns Mm. of the students to each other. And then I'll try to sometimes relate those to, so, so I'll say, so you're having this debate in the classroom that actually is, is that's a debate that has a history. It's, it's gone on for a long time. Here's what other people have said about it. So the students can kind of try to see their, their intense disagreement in the moment actually belongs in a, in a wider frame of reference. Yeah. Yeah. A larger, bigger, lots of people. Uh, that's really good. Okay. Uh, next question is, um, in my experience, oftentimes a leader is the last person in the room to know when they're not okay. Um, who in your life knows that you're not okay before you know? Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll share with your listeners. One of the, one of the real blessings and gifts of my life is that I, as a, as a single man, as a celibate man, uh, actually share a home with other people. So uh, when I first moved here to Pittsburgh to take the job where I, I, I teach at a seminary here um, called Trinity School for Ministry, and I didn't know anybody. Uh, I was moving from the UK where I did my, my doctoral work, and I remember praying in the weeks and days leading up to moving here, Lord, I'm going to need some friends. I, I'm, I'm going to need yeah. at least one or two, right? It doesn't have to be a huge number, yeah. but I, I'm going to need people that I, I really know deeply and they know me. Um, so I started making that a matter of intentional prayer and almost, you know, as soon as I got here, I had an email from a student saying, Hey, my wife and I are going to be back home in Alaska for the summer. So if you need a place to land while you're house hunting, you can stay at our place. And I thought, well, that's really kind. And, uh, so I thanked him when he, when he got back, uh, on campus and that started a friendship. So his name is Aiden. Uh, his wife's name is Melanie. And it was just the two of them when I first met them. And I would say it was almost friendship at first sight. You know, we just hit it off and Hmm. we started off sharing a weekly meal. Uh, We kind of alternated going to each other's houses and cooking for each other. And that kind of turned into a couple nights a week. And and we were looking for ways to, um, you know, go on trips together. It was just a, it was, it was an immediate click. Um, We just felt like we, we liked each other from the beginning. They now have two children who are my godchildren. Oh, wow. Listy turns four this month as we're recording this, and Solomon will turn one. 
So, um, so we have this big creaky old house. I'm on the third floor and I have my own space there. They have the second floor and then we, we share the kitchen and the living space on the first floor. And, um, but they, I mean, they can pick up on the subtlest shifts of mood with me. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Like I'll, I'll come home from a hard day at work sometimes feeling, you know, all the emotions you can feel like I was a failure in the classroom or I, uh, the faculty meeting didn't go the way I wanted it to go. And I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job of hiding how I'm feeling. And, and Aiden will say everything. Okay, Wes, you know, or, or, or Mel will, we, we have this tradition, which we learned from another friend of ours, that if someone's gone through a hard week and they're feeling, especially if they feel like they've been, they failed in some way, um, we'll have a night where we eat a failure cake together. Oh wow! We'll, we'll, we'll bake it and then we'll we'll share about the failure, and uh, and you know just just let it let it go, you know, and and hopefully start start afresh the next day. So uh, th- there was a time recently where Mel said, "Wes, I think it needs to be a failure cake week. Uh, it seems like it's been a hard week." And I said, "Man, you know me too well. It's it's true. I need a failure cake." So <laughs> yeah, so my housemates are 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 key there for me. That's amazing. I've never heard of a failure cake, but that's a brilliant <laughs> one of the tools we teach people to uh, offset anxiety is to use an absurdity. Yeah, and that's not absurd, but it's in that same. That's yeah, certainly it's playful. Sort of silly and playful. Wonderfully yeah. playful. Oh, I love that. Did you do a genogram in your CPE? Yes, I think we did. Talk to me. It'd about- be like a, a family tree where you map out emotional relationships and uh, conditions and addictions, things like we, that. We did do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I wonder if you'd be willing to name for us a family trait that you see as an asset in your vocation and then one that always gets in the way. Yeah. So one, one of the things people enjoy laughing about with regard to the South in the US is the sort of Southern niceness you know, okay. Southern friendliness. And yep. I, my family culture had that in spades. Um, you know, it was a, it was an absolutely cardinal sin to not greet someone really warmly at the grocery store and chat a bit about the weather, you know, now you could, you could talk about them behind their back and that would be okay. But you had, you had to have that, that polite, uh, you know, veneer of friendliness at the beginning. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I remember even, as a child, you know, like hearing my parents complain about people they didn't think were friendly enough and, or, or, you know, they they walked right by me and didn't even speak to me, you know, this kind of thing. And, um, so I, I think of that, I, I I think of that as a kind of mixed blessing, to be honest. I, I think it's, I've come to think that, um, politeness is a virtue. And, it, you know, if, if you're someone who's just kind of brusque and rude, you know, on purpose and you expect other people to just kind of put up with your, your brusqueness, you know, I, I, I think Southern culture might have something to offer you that would be, that would be good. You know, there's, there's something, <laughs> there's something beautiful about just kind of a basic friendliness and, and niceness. But, um, I guess the flip side of that for me is it's, and I, 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 I know this is not exactly perhaps necessarily a family trait, but I think, I think it's led to a real aversion to conflict and, and, yeah. okay. um, and I, you know, as you know, in your work in ministry, I'm sure that 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 can be a, a very bad trait for a minister to, to have or a leader to have is an inability to talk frankly about problems, you know, and disagreements. So, well, it's, it's even fascinating to hear you say that and then look at your classroom management back through that lens. Yeah. 
yeah. um, of, of if, if there's a, I mean, I'm totally projecting, but <laughs> is there a moment where you're short-circuiting the tension for your own sake? I do. I do think about that. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And, and certainly those, those are times where I'll walk out thinking, you know, I could have, I could have let that go a bit longer or, yeah. or, you know, we could have dug into that a bit more. They were not yet to blows. So, you know, <laughs> right. yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, I, I think one of the challenges of, of faith is um, there's always a gap between what we believe about God and what we experience from God. Well, I shouldn't say always, but I think for most Christians, we live in that gap. What would one of those gaps be for you? Like in my life, believing that God loves me versus experiencing it personally has been a long-term challenge. What would you say is a gap for you? So I, uh, you know, we, we mentioned s- some of my books earlier in the podcast. And and one of the things that I really try to do in my public leadership, in my public writing, whenever I talk about sexuality, I try to talk about the hopefulness that I feel in being celibate. I try to say this is not just about gloom and loneliness and sort of isolation. There, there's, there are real joys and gifts in it. And, you know, I'll talk about my family here, you know, my, my godchildren and the fact that I get to share life with them. And all of that is true, but I feel a little pang of conscience sometimes that I haven't been completely honest about just how hard it can be as well. What I would say about my celibacy is I, since I have started living in community, you know, not living by myself anymore and, and really intentionally embracing that as a calling, I have found that it has all but removed a certain kind of loneliness. I don't have to worry anymore about, uh, you know, who I'll have dinner with tonight or if something happened that was funny at the grocery store, I can, I, I don't have to wonder about who I'm going to tell that story to. I know that I'm going to tell my housemates. So there's a certain kind of loneliness that I just don't deal with anymore. But there are other forms of loneliness that are just as profound, right? You know, um, you know, walking up to the third floor and realizing I'm going to, I'm going to slip into bed alone tonight with my little dog. He'll, he'll be there at the foot of the bed. And, and there's something painful about that. You know, there's something, um, I wish that weren't the case uh, many nights. Um, so I, I think I'm I'm constantly asking myself, how can I be appropriately transparent about the ongoing pain and challenges of being a celibate man? How can I not just present this rosy picture that, you know, because it is rosy in certain ways, uh, but, but sure. how, how do we, uh, you know, John, John Cates, the poet, has this phrase, negative capability. We need to be able to uh, exist in tension and we need to be able to not run away from areas of darkness and confusion and hurt. And uh, so I, I think I think I, I think many of us evangelical Christians need more negative capability. I like that. The ability to be in in the in the dark spaces. I, I really like that. It's it's my I mean, this is a generalization, but I I believe our modern faith is way too aspirational. Yes. And we just keep saying it. And it, it's almost like there's a frenzy. If we just keep saying it, we'll actually feel it. But so true, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah. But the the Christians in the New Testament, the Jewish faith, and the Hebrew Scriptures, profound pain and disillusion. And exactly. Yeah. Thank you. That that's a that was a beautiful answer. Thank you for for sharing that. Oh, thanks. Um, the final question is: I, I actually believe that the chronic anxiety uh, is actually a, a spiritual force. Hmm. And and that it tends to invade us to where we're no longer aware of God's presence. And in fact, I tend to train people that that's one of the ways you know you're in the anxiety's grip is if you forget God's with you. 
you kind of start to believe it's all on you or that you're doomed. Um, and so therefore, being able to displace anxiety with the love of God becomes, I think, really essential. So when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? So there's a uh, there's a there's a trip that I take every summer with uh, four other guys. Three of them are are roughly my age. I'm I'm almost forty, and then um, another one is is towards the end of his career. He's a he's a a minister in South Carolina, and we we make it a point to go somewhere other than where each of us live. So we 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 just returned a couple of weeks ago. We went to a remote cabin in the woods in North Carolina. It's totally, we refer to it as our unaccountability group. It's it's not a very formal structured thing. I mean, we're all Christians, you know, we all yeah. love the Lord, but it's not, a, it's not all about being serious and, and dour. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of fun involved, but in the evenings, you know, we, we, we sit around, we make dinner together. And I have to tell you, it's, it's, it's probably the most vulnerable week of my year. Uh, we, we just talk about things that are hard in our they're all married, so they talk about their marriages and their their children, and the each of them serves in churches. We're all in ministry, and they talk about what's going well, what's what's hard, and it's. I think we all feel like we have conversations in those groups, in those trips that we can't have with anyone else. Really, that we feel totally seen. And I mean, maybe it's a cliche, but I just feel like if, if you can be completely vulnerable and admit your most terrible secrets and still be loved and and have these guys say Wes we get it we we love you we want to we want to help you keep going um that's enough to charge me up for you know months <laughs> uh, 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 for for the for the upcoming chapter of the journey. So, yeah, I just I I think a lot about that line from Tim Keller. You know, the gospel is that you're 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 known to the depths and loved to the skies. You're yeah. known, you're known in all of your sinfulness, and you're loved with an unbreakable love because of Jesus. And um, yeah, I feel that when I'm with those guys. That's really good. Yeah, I, I've asked this question now for uh, almost a couple of years, and it, it's interesting the variety of answers. But the theme is always being seen. I think mm-hmm. I, I've come to conclude. I didn't know when I started asking this question. I actually got it from Dana Carvey, mm. uh, the Saturday Night Live comedian of all people. Yeah, I was watching an episode of he and Jerry Seinfeld, and he just stopped in comedians in cars getting coffee. He looked at Jerry and he said, "Jerry, when in your life do you feel most fully loved?" Huh. I was like, what a question. So huh. I, I started asking it. But everyone is answering in some form that it's when they feel fully seen. It's, yeah. it's really yeah. profound. It is profound. Yeah. Hmm. Wesley, thanks for joining us. This was a treat. I, I've been looking forward to this for a while. And, and thanks so much for, for connecting with me on the show. Well, thanks. I, I'm honored to be a guest. I, I love what you're doing. And, and thanks for the conversation. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org.